Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah, wa alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and welcome to the, I don't know how many episodes we've had so far, of these paradigms of leadership sessions. Uh, but in every case, I think we have experienced the truth of the ulama's dictum that be dhikrihim tanzilur rahmah. By remembering the great ones of the ummah, mercy descends upon us. Uh, we do not have the uh, contemporary cult of celebrity in uh, the uh, Islamic context, which is all about ego. But instead, we respect and find blessings in uh, those whose lives have been uplifted and transformed and illuminated by the following of the Chosen One, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, who is the paradigm of all of these paradigms to the extent that we are inspired by him and submit to his way, we become Islamic. There's no other way. So these are all different facets of the diamond uh, of the Chosen One, alayhi salatu wasalam, all of these individuals who took themselves to be stepping humbly and at varying degrees of distance in his footsteps, the footsteps in which so many flowers grew. <clears throat> and uh, we began this series really by looking at one of the transitional figures, Imam Shamil, the great Mujahid scholar of uh, the Caucasus, of the Dagestan Avar borders, uh, and considered ways in which the still entirely traditional world of Islam was being challenged in the mid 19th century by being pitched headlong against its will into uh, European modernity. Unable to resist that encounter because of the uh, military technological prowess of the European peoples who had, as it were, sold their religiosity uh, in order to buy uh, mechanical, physical mastery. And so the ancient process whereby the older religions, understood by the ulama as abrogated earlier versions of the one true faith, were naturally receding started to be reversed in ways that the ulama found it very difficult to understand. Often an extremely brutal process. Islam came to Europe at its greatest moments of its high tide, reached the Pyrenees and beyond, crossed the St. Bernard's Pass even, the heights of Switzerland. And then to the east, of course, the Muslims of Russia, Islam reaching Russia before Christianity reaches Russia. And then in the Balkans, cities like Budapest, so much <clears throat> has been touched and illuminated by the spirit of Islam, not just for the illumination of the Muslims who came, but those who were protected by Islam, particularly the Jewish communities and other minorities in Islam's very cosmopolitan vision of how a decent human society is constituted, and then pushed back with the most excruciating cruelty and violence in the
the West, the Inquisition, uh, and in the East, mm, the destruction of the Muslims after the defeat at Kazan. So in the West, Pedro the Cruel, in the East, Ivan the Terrible, and this process went on, the destruction of Circassia, which we looked at briefly, and then the, the appalling Russian penetration of the Caucasus and Imam Shamil defending his people with his ancient musket <coughs> in that time of massive European triumphalism. And this mid-19th century period is the time of Imam Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi in the Islamic West, and it's the time of the Tomzi Mat, the great reforms, the modernizing, Europeanizing uh, reforms whereby the Turkish Empire becomes part of the concert of Europe, part of the international system of nation states. The Sultan moves into a European style palace, Dolmabachi, and the 1850s really are gigantically important as a kind of symbol of the Islamic world having to play this Western game in order to hold on to its remaining territories. We looked uh, a few sessions ago at one of the figures further east who were engaged in this process of dialogue and retrenchment. <clears throat> that was Maulana Hussein Ahmed Madani uh, of uh, one of the great scholars of, of Darul Ulum Deoband uh, and uh, great, great inspiration. Uh, and I want to go back to India today, partly because uh, it's one of the great hubs of Islamic civilization. One could even just about make the claim if you visit the museums, the summit of Islamic civilization. Maybe the arts and the literature of the Mughal Empire were greater than the arts and the literature of the, say, Ottoman Empire or Safavid Empires. You could make that claim. If you look at the, just the cultural productions, the stonework of Fatehpur Sikri, the, the textiles, uh, the uh, music, the cuisine, the Taj Mahal, it's one of the great summits of human civilization. One might even say the summit of human civilization. It's a subjective judgment, of course, but, but pretty unsurpassable. <laughs> and this civilization of the sacred with its ulama and its munshis and its khawajas and its uh, extraordinary uh, upliftment of the story of Hind, becomes colonized by the arch-pragmatists of Europe, the trader English. They go there not really for Christianity the way that you know, Jesuits had done and the Portuguese had done. They go there to cut a deal. The East India Company is a big multinational, which is emphatically profane, materialistic in its purposes. And this is the nature of the modern world. The modern world is about business. What is Brexit about? It's about getting the deal. It's not really about the symbolism of Western civilization and unity or none of those philosophical things, still less spiritual things are mentioned or even on the minds of any of the negotiators. It's about fisheries and access to markets, and it, that's the level the civilization seems to be operating on. But the British are already there uh, in India to cut a deal after Clive, the Battle of Plessy, the destruction of Tipu Sultan, and then 1857, right in the middle of this decade that we're fingering as the watershed time for the Ummah, 
1857, the first Indian War of Independence, the uprising, whatever you choose to call it, uh, the last gasp of the old order and uh, the arrest and the deportation in scenes of considerable misery of the last Mughal and his exile and the catastrophic end, symbolic end by this time, because his reign really is just in the old city of Delhi, but still he is Mughal Azam. That, that means something. And then the East India Company becomes the British Raj and a different kind of discourse, which is actually harder to accommodate, comes about because the East India Company had claimed to be about textiles from Bengal and opium and whatever made, uh, uh, made money. The Raj claimed itself to be a more civilizational exercise, the white man's burden. <coughs> and became in its time the operator of a kind of soft apartheid, separate railway compartments for Europeans and natives, that, that thing that, that the Raj did, which was not what the East India Company had done, where intermarriage and a lot of cultural curiosity was, was pretty normal. Uh, and the old days when it was assumed that if you were a collector or a judge in the British influenced parts of India, then you could deal respectfully with the culture of the natives by learning Persian in particular, that became less common. And a certain cantonment mentality developed. And this was a new scenario for the Olama. And the, the, the adjustment was a painful one. And in a sense, was more intense than that that, say, the Ottoman Olama found themselves confronting because until the end of the First World War, there were no Christian soldiers occupying Constantinople, but in India, it was you know, a, a daily reality. The missionaries, the new churches, the railways, the, the white man's burden, uh, a painful experience. <clears throat> so we can learn a lot, even though we're now two centuries later, uh, from that first Muslim impacting of the full tradition and the very pragmatic, materialist, mercantile mentality of the British Raj and uh, its uh, assumption of its right to prevail civilizationally. Uh, and the story will be familiar to many of the reactions of the ulama and the Muslim elites, which were <coughs> all over the place, <coughs> from a certain retrenchment of tradition and uh, an ideologizing in certain ways of aspects of subcontinental Islam, the development of the Deoband and Brailvi traditions, the emergence of Ahlul Hadith type fundamentalisms, the development of mashrabs and madhabs and the concretizing of certain strands that have been distinct in Indian Islam for a long time, but uh, which had been less sectarian in the past the beginning of significant, a significant sense of Sunni-Shi'i uh, differentiation. Uh, it was an age of sectarianism against the backdrop of what shall we do with this new catastrophe. Uh, and some took the opposite view, if you can't beat them, join them. Why are we defeated? It's because we didn't get to these scientific truths first. We didn't have Galileo, we didn't have Copernicus, we didn't have Newton, and therefore we weren't able to defend ourselves with the technologies that come from those scientific worldviews. And so a certain type of scientific apologia became quite common. Mulvi Chirach Ali, 
an example of somebody who seemed quite happy to throw out the, the, the scriptural baby with the bathwater of tradition. Uh, so Sayyid Ahmed Khan, founder of the Aligarh movement, more considerable personality perhaps, but still somebody who's an arch-modernist uh, and very keen to allegorize and interpret away anything in uh, the tradition that seemed not to fit his very sort of Victorian um, science-oriented worldview. Um, so a world of real bifurcations. And of course, on the ground, the ordinary Muslims are still going to the peers and the, the Mazars, and life for them more or less continues uh, unabated, unlike French colonialism, which wanted to change everybody and evolve the Muslims to create a musulman évolué, an evolved Muslim. In other words, a Frenchified Muslim. There's no other model of evolution. The British were content to allow local institutions, uh, sacred spaces, um, urban fabrics to continue um, unimpeded to a considerable extent. Um, now we saw with, with the sort of Deoband idea and with Hossein Ahmad Madani in particular, what you might describe as a continuation rather than a break with the past, but one that nonetheless was alert to a new set of questions which were being asked of and by the Muslim elite. Whatever happened, it was clear that one couldn't just continue with the magnificent world of the peacock throne and the courtiers. That was coming to an end, and even the little replications of it in the courts of Hyderabad, Bhopal, Oud, and wherever were kind of Clearly their days were numbered as you know, the, uh, they went riding with the Saabs and the local collectors and they joined the clubs and they went to public schools and went to rugby, Eton and so forth. And that world was also being anglicised. That didn't seem to be a place where the tradition could continue uh, uninterruptedly. There was a sense of hiatus and discontinuity. But we saw with Madani the the continuation certainly of a kind of tasawwuf, the Hanafi madhab, uh, the Maturidi aqidah, and the, the Chishti Sabri line from Haji Imdadullah Makki in particular, who we looked at as, as an example of a sober but nonetheless charismatic uh, uh, figure from, from the, the Chishti line, um, the sage who lived in the forest and then came out to inspire the, the ulama, great commentator on the Masnavi, the significance of Rumi in all of this, and this continues way back in India and goes on to inspire Bertrand uh, Iqbal and continues to be um, exemplary. Malona uh, Rashid Ahmed Gangohi, who dies right at the beginning of the 20th century, that world uh, is also in response to uh, the new facts of the Raj. Uh, but the individual I want to talk about today is indicative of the crisis in a different way and somebody who partook of the darkest aspects of the crisis for a certain significant period of his life. Uh, uh, and this is Molana, as he's generally called, although he didn't go to a Darul Ulum. Uh, Abdul Majid Daryabadi. Uh, who died in 1977, so you know, part of our modernity, really, um, died in, in Lucknow. 
Um, and the, what's interesting, well, there's many things that are interesting and kind of indicative, symptomatic about his life, which, as is normally the case with, a, with, a, with an alim, is not kind of the uh, Imam Shamil idea of jumping over the heads of the astonished Russian soldiers to fight another day. It's not that kind of uh, heroism, but, but still, a jihad with a qalam, if not with a qadam, you know, with the pen, not with uh, physically marching out. Uh, and known, and this seems to be a particular feature of the Indian tradition at the time, as a Quranic scholar. Well, there are so many others um, who are writing tafsirs, who are reflecting on the Quran. Uh, this is to some extent because of the apologetic environment that the missionaries and the rationalists and the British are just looking at the Muslim scripture, the Qur'an, and taking it apart, rearranging it, figuring out how to criticise it, um, how to pull the rug from beneath the epistemic unity of the Mohammedan population in order to either make them go to Church of England services in Simla or something, or just you know, to take away from their minds any thought of... Uh, independence uh, and autonomy to make them uh, subaltern subjects of the colonial state. And uh, this uh, focus on the Qur'an, which really is the kind of great love of uh, Daryabadi's life, uh, is, as I say, something that's very emblematically Indian. So I want, I want to talk about uh, Daryabadi in particular, not just because his life is sort of interesting and indicative, but because so many larger issues about tradition and modernity and how these paradigms of leadership adjust to the historically unparalleled challenges of, um, of, of modernity and the unexpected regrowth of um, empowered Ahlul Kitab opposition to the Tawheed of Islam. So uh, Daryabad is this small town in UP, now Uttar Pradesh, then the United Provinces, which in many ways is the kind of intellectual and spiritual heartland of Islam in Hindustan generally. This is the land of Deoband, of Lucknow, of Saharanpur, Delhi. This is kind of was the core of the Mughal Empire core of the intellectual life of, of that world. Um, now he's um, from a kind of subcontinental Islam is kind of divided into groups and not quite castes but family groups. You've got the Chaudhrys in the East, you've got the Memons, you've got, uh, it's a big deal in the subcontinent. He's from a kind of Qidway caste or class, and you get Qidwais to this day in that region, particularly in Lucknow, also some in Karachi and elsewhere, um, from the Arabic word Qudwa, Qudwat al-Ulama or Qudwat al-Qudat, because the eponymous semi-imaginary ancestor of uh, these people was a, was a certain Mu'izzuddin, um, who came to India, we're told, uh, with one of the, the Afghan waves of conquerors and settles in Ayodhya, famous Babri Mosque in Ayodhya, now being rededicated as, a, as an idol temple. Um, and uh, the Kidwai the family, which continues to produce uh, eminent scholars in the subcontinent and populate the uh, universities there, 
um, have supplied the, the basic bio data. So most of this talk is going to be based on this actually quite palatable, readable um, book. Journey of Faith, Maulana Abdul Majid Daryabadi, um, Abdurrahim Kidway is one of the editors. There's a lot of bio data in there as well. It's not just uh, uh, selected very useful translations into English of pieces by him and about him. It's quite a useful kind of work. It's quite recent. We have it in the library here at CMC. So I'm going to be following this story. Um, so there's this story of the Qidwais and how they came to India. Um, uh, some modern ulama have wondered about the wisdom of the propensity of the Muslims in Hindustan. Uh, unlike, say, the Muslims of the Balkans, or of China, or elsewhere, to proudly trace their ancestry back to non-Hindustani places, because, of course, this provides ammunition for the Hindutva, Hindu nationalists who say, they're just colonists, um, you don't really belong. Um, but after so much, so many, a thousand years of intermarriage and so forth, there is... Um, ethnically Indian as anybody else. And the just to open a parenthesis here, the, the richness of this tradition, which even after the, the pushing over of the Mughals by the Marathas and then finally by the, uh, by the, the English, uh, generated such extraordinary and unprecedented cultural richnesses in India, the tourists. <laughs> They want to see the Taj Mahal, they want to see the Red Fort, they want to see you know, the wonders of Muslim India. Um, and they'll go and see Hindu temples and so forth, but it's, it's the Mughal achievements that are the jewels in the crown of India that um, many thoughtful Indians, Arundhati Roy, for instance, are saying, there is no better way of reducing the world's respect for India than denying this Muslim sort of summit this jewel in the crown, this extraordinary you know, wealth, and you visit the Victoria and Albert Museum in London at the Nehru Gallery, and there's Hindu stuff there, but the Muslim stuff is where you get the crowds. It's so amazing. <laughs> so Hindu nationalism is not the same as Indian nationalism, because India is not just the Hindu thing, but is an accumulation as a cosmopolitan region of other things as well that, that represent part of its greatness and uh, its, anyway. One of the reasons I think why you get more and more converts to Islam from Hinduism now, and we see this really quite strikingly, is because uh, the Hindutva thing is turning the Hindu identity into yet another kind of nasty religious nationalism. And a lot of people are kind of repelled from that and looking for alternatives. So one of the silver linings of this Modi-type chauvinism seems to be a migration of young, thoughtful Indians in the direction of Islam and sometimes other religions as well. Um, in any case, that, that's another story. But uh, the point is these people really see themselves as Indian, as part of the Hindustan development that was the Vedas and then the Dravidian, the Aryan invasions and these accumulations of people who come from outside to, to bring it up, to become this sort of cultural amazement uh, that, was, that was India. So um, 
this idea that oh we're from elsewhere is not is a kind of a two-edged sword but in any case um, if any of them has a DNA test you can see it's like 99% Indian uh, the nationalist thing doesn't really work but uh, his great ancestor who is a more historical figure um, Khwaja Mahdum Abkesh Abkesh just means he brought water to a, a desiccated place settled in Daryabad which is this small town still a small town in, in UP, and the family are based there. His grandfather, Daribedi's grandfather, is certainly a Maulana in the tradition of, of Olama, of the Firangi Mahal Olama of Lucknow, kind of rationalizing traditionalist scholars, big on logic, kalam, that kind of, of, of rationality. This is Mufti Mazhar Karim. He supports of course, the Indian side against the British in 1857. Hard not to, if you're an alim. And the British don't shoot him out of a cannon <laughs> the way they do with some others, uh, but they exile him to the Andaman Islands, which is their kind of India's Australia, it's a penal colony, uh, where he stays for several years and Know, continues to translate and write books as an indefatigable scholar. He manages to get paper. He, he writes on fiqh and tasawwuf and does a translation of a medieval Arabic text on, on, on geography. He's um, not phased by this at all. Um, his son, uh, Mufti Masar's son, Mulvi Abdul Qadr, is also a graduate of this Firangi Mahal. Firangi Mahal, it's the district of the Europeans. That's what Firangi Mahal means, which is kind of if you're in Lucknow, it's the Chalk meeting Victoria Road, and the, the place is still known and pointed out. But this becomes a great sort of centre, um, originally quite an informal way for uh, Hanafi ulama of the strongly rationalising Maturidi tradition that comes originally through a genealogy going back to Samarkand and the Maturidis of, of, of Samarkand, um, very developed Kalam tradition. So... Uh, uh, Daryabadi's father is also from that from that world, but this is now the Raj, uh, and he, in order to sustain himself, the Mughals are gone. If you want a decent, honourable living, you somehow have to deal with the fact of the British structure. So he becomes deputy collector in several districts in UP, which is a pretty um, decent kind of job. Moves around, knows English. It's really important to understand that Daryabadi, even though his further ancestors are Munshis, Molvis, poets, that they're already accommodating themselves to the new British reality, speaking English, getting on with British railway officials and so forth. Um, but he's still, the father is still devout, a lover of the Qur'an, a lover of Persian poetry, a lover of Urdu poetry, uh, and also known to have been respected by the Hindus and in the context of modern Indian nationalism. It's important to remember that these traditional people had developed for years a close modus vivendi with the Hindu classes who also were lovers of, of Persian poetry and accommodated to the same world. So um, that's his father, Rahmatullahi Alayhi. Um, his mother, Nasrun Nisa. Uh, the women are important in these stories, but because they are masturat, <laughs> um, their world is not the documented world of the public space, but the 
no less significant world of the home, which is particularly important in that this is where the new generation is being shaped and schooled. Women have a particularly significant role. So when we look at her life, we see the real conservatism of these families at the time. When she took the train, <laughs> they had to book a whole railway compartment in case some strange man came. She didn't wait on the platform, but she came in a kind of palanquin that was carried by bearers with curtains, which was put into the train, and she'd get out when she was in the train, so nobody could see anything at all. This was the real street. Porda. Uh, so she's from that world, but she's a lover of the Qur'an. She says tahajjud every night. She's really active in her world, which is a world of sadaqah looking after orphans, feeding the poor. And orphans are one of the instruments of Islamization in India because there's famines and famines and famines and a lot of people die. The country is full of orphans. Muslim or Hindu orphans, they get taken in by these big sort of traditional Ahli Zaban, Urdu-speaking families, brought up uh, as Muslims as part of the enormous sprawling ethnic uh, 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 extended family. Um, so this is his family background. He is born in 1892 in the town of Daryabad, and he does the traditional thing. The age of four, the traditional Indian ceremony, the Bismillah. He recites the Arabic Urdu letters for the first time. He recites his Fatiha. Everybody celebrates as a meal, and he's off. So his early education is done at home in the traditional way with a munshi who's around all day long and uh, Persian teachers, Qur'an teachers come to the house and he does the very Persian-focused kind of ethical syllabus because the Persian style of teaching is kind of sweet and enjoyable for children, particularly texts like Sa'adi, the Gulistan and the Bustan. It's kind of nice stories, some of it quite amusing. Uh, but always with a moral and an Islamic message, that Persian becomes an important instrument of communication, really, even for young children in, in this world. So he does Sa'adi's Bustan in particular. Um, he looks at, um, he says that at an early age he was exposed to Imam Ghazali's uh, Kimyai Sa'adat. <laughs> Quite a difficult text, but something presumably sunk in. Mullah Jami, Yusuf Zulaikha, which actually we had a lecture on Mullah Jami um, a few months ago, and we did some extracts from Yusuf Zulaikha. Um, uh, Urdu poetry, moral tales. By the age of seven, he's a Hafiz. Um, and he has, because this is a kind of Lucknow, UP world of everybody is into poetry, it's before people have phones to waste their lives on. Poetry is the thing. That family members are saying, come to me with this, to this bookshop. I've heard, heard that they've got a new poetry collection. Have you heard that there's a new edition of this? And it, Books are everybody's life. That's all there is. There's not even wireless by this, at this stage. It's just books. Everything is print media and manuscripts. Um, so at the age of eight, he goes to school for the first time, and he proves exceptional. 
Now his parents, because his father is this district collector, are not putting him in a madrasa or a darul alam. He doesn't engage with that world, even though he becomes you know, significant finally in the Nadwat al ulama in, in Lucknow. Uh, but he goes to uh, a kind of European-style school in which he's one of the very few Muslim pupils. Almost everybody is Hindu. Uh, and uh, he has a good relationship with them. He learns English for the first time from a Hindu teacher. There's just two Muslim teachers in the school who are both Shia, Lucknow and region. There's a big uh, 12 Shia community. Um, now his relations with Hindus, interesting, and again from this, this book, let me just read a translation of Daryabadi's own recollection of uh, what it was like to be... Uh, you know, minority pupil. It was for the first time that I came into direct contact with Hindus, who are my equals. Earlier I'd been in touch with only some subordinate Hindus, as for example the stable boy, office attendant or private tutor. The Hindu custom of greeting with the folding hands, the excessive respect for Brahmans which bordered on veneration, the touching the feet of teachers, their practice of untouchability even among themselves struck me. They did not share food or drink among themselves, never mind eating or drinking with Muslims. Hmm. Students had the option to learn either Persian or Sanskrit. Most of the students, who were of course Hindus, used to opt for Persian. Even the majority of the teachers of Persian were Hindus. Hmm. At the insistence of the Arabic teacher, however, I chose Arabic as the optional language. Uh, this is a hundred years ago, <laughs> India has really changed. It's hard to imagine that educated Hindus and schoolboys would prefer to do Persian, where the literature is entirely Islamic. There's no Hindu-Persian literature, really, that's in the canon. Uh, and that that was just the language of India. It was the language, educated language of India before English came to displace, displace it all. Um, so, I was weak in mathematics. My Hindu headmaster was kind enough to ask a class fellow to help me overcome my weakness. He did this job almost as a religious duty and did not charge any fee. Although he was a needy student, he declined to accept the modest honorarium which I offered him after the examination. Later on, he joined the education department as a demonstrator. In 1960, when he learned about the demise of my elder brother, he visited me after a gap of decades. While offering condolences to me, he said, Today not only your brother, my brother too has passed away. I stand by you in your grief. So he's very insistent later on when tensions, uh, communist tensions become you know, the big issue in India, to, to record the fact that in his day, this is before the First World War, relations are pretty good and the Islamic culture is kind of the prestige culture. And he also notices his observation of these internal differentiations between the, the Hindus, that they wouldn't share food amongst themselves because they were from different castes and different subcastes and were simply not allowed to do that. So it's a very interesting reminder of, of a different India, the pre-partition pre India before the British and others started to stir up this communist divide and rule thing. It's, I think it's important for Muslims now to remember that things were not always bad. So, um, he then goes on to Lucknow to something called Canning College, which is a Europeanized branch of the University of Allahabad 
it becomes a uh, a university, Lucknow University, a bit later. By this time, it's a kind of branch of of the other one. Um, the lecturers here are mostly Europeans. Academics have come out from Europe, usually Germans or English. Um, and here, the subjects that he chooses are Arabic and philosophy and English. Those three things put together become really important in shaping his orientation and his technique in his, in his tafsir. And the standard's pretty high as far as one could tell because the Arabic set texts include some of the hardest things. If you know Arabic literature, you'll recognize the names of the Diwan of Abu Tammam, the Maqamat of Al-Hariri and Al-Hamadani, Ibn Khaldun. This is fairly advanced stuff. But he's really even though he never really gets top grades, he comes out with a 2-1. Um, he's really just uh, an obsessively voracious reader. He's in the library of this Canning College place and he sets out to read everything he can get his hands on. <laughs> so he hears weeks in advance with great excitement that the new edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica is going to arrive in Lucknow. Nowadays, young people might think, oh, the next series of Game of Thrones, yeah, that's where we are now. But back then, Encyclopedia Britannica is coming. It doesn't reach the library yet, but he's impatient. So he has a Hindu friend who's bought it, who's wealthy, who agrees to lend it to him one volume at a time. <laughs> so he reads the whole Encyclopedia Britannica, 38 volumes, uh, and acquires, as a result, a pretty encyclopedic amount of knowledge. Even though, when you read his tafsir, it doesn't become particularly burdensome. It's not full of obscure references. He actually limits himself to a fairly small number of European sources when he's dealing, for instance, with biblical place names that relate to Quranic stories. Um, he doesn't uh, wear his learning on his sleeve, but clearly erudition and also a very strong memory to necessary preconditions for scholarship. <laughs> so um, his reading in the library, and the library is full particularly of English philosophers, Locke, Hume, well he's Scottish, John Stuart Mill, um, Henry James, author of this religiously quite subversive book, Varieties of Religious Experience. Um, Lucknow, of course, is also one of the great centres of Urdu learning, and he associates with people like Abul Kalam Azad, who later, of course, um, becomes another Quranic focused person. His great Tarjuman al Quran, bits of which are in English, uh, and becomes the first Minister of Education in independent India, Abul Kalam Azad, an opponent of partition, a significant scholar, Molana. Um, in 1912, he graduates. Uh, and he wants to do a master's. It's already pretty unusual for an Indian to have a BA in those days. Even in England at the time, it was unusual. Uh, where to go for a master's in India? There's basically just two places. There's Benares Hindu University, and there's this place that Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan has created in 1875, uh, the Anglo-Mohammedan College in Aligarh. Now this... Uh, still exists, of course. Aligarh is one of the main universities of India. Aligarh Muslim University, it's called now. And it has sub-campuses in Bengal and Kerala and places, and is mainly science-oriented now. But it has a faculty of theology with 
a Shi'i section and a Sunni section. That's how things are nowadays. Uh, but back then it was the only place where you could get a Western-style uh, university education. And it was founded by Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan after his visit to Oxford and Cambridge. He wanted there to be an Indian Mohammedan version of this. So it has kind of Oxford-type quadrangles and libraries, debating societies, chess clubs. It's that sort of Victorian institution and did a lot for uh, the Muslims of the subcontinent and was focused on the broader Aligarh movement that included, for instance, a movement to reform the Urdu language so that it became a little bit less complex and fustian and rococo and became a little bit simpler so that more people could simply understand texts. Um, so uh, he studies there where he encounters not just English empiricist philosophers, but also German idealists, Kant and Hegel in particular. Uh, he doesn't really thrive there. He moves on to St. Stephen's College in Delhi, which again is, is um, still there. Um, I'm in touch with uh, one or two members of, of staff there. It's an Anglican institution. He continues his MA, but in 1912 his father dies. Uh, his father, before he dies, he dies on Hajj, he's buried in Mu'alla. Um, his father uh, puts aside some income for him, that's not accessible, but uh, an important philanthropist called the Raja of Mahmudabad donates some money for the support of him specifically because he's a rising star. Raja of Mahmudabad is an interesting figure in the development of British Islam. You still hear his name amongst old-timers. Uh, now, but this in 1912 is the old Raja of Mahmudabad, um, Muhammad Ali Muhammad Khan, who dies shortly afterwards, and the later Raja of Mahmudabad, the Shi'i family, um, so he had a house in Karbala, which was then donated to the government of Pakistan, that what became of it, uh, and is buried in Mashhad. But this Raja of Mahmudabad, uh, Muhammad Amir, I think, uh, who, Mahmudabad, small city, mainly Muslim, or maybe 50-50 Hindu-Muslim, with a big Muslim qila castle in the middle, the traditional sort of Nawab scene. Um, he's really a kind of Sufi, Shi'i, kind of ecstatic type. And it's he who creates the Islamic Cultural Centre in London, which is Regent's Lodge, mm -hmm which then becomes the Islamic Cultural Center, which is the Regent's Park Mosque. He's the one who agitates for that and um, get, collects money and, and makes that happen and becomes its first director, a very you know, Ibn Arabi-oriented, um, quite ecstatic lover of God, particular, very aristocratic man. I've, I've met people who uh, remember him and were quite... Uh, he was particularly support, supportive of the convert community at the time. That was before the Arab embassies really got, got involved. Um, his Marcia, his great poem in Urdu on the death of Imam Hussein, uh, published in London just a couple of years ago, I think. Uh, so still, his literary presence is, is there. But the Raja of Mahmudabad, significant figure. So his father puts money in an account to support Dari Abadi, who's this promising student. Uh, his father dies, never comes back from Hajj, and then the bank breaks, and the money's gone. 
so he can't continue his MA. And the family, relatives, they're not really able to support him with this. So he never really finishes his academic career, which he said later on might have been a blessing. He might have ended up as a philosophy teacher in some minor university and kind of spent his time teaching Hegel to Indians and fine, but not, not uh, transformative. Um, but during this time, something is going on within him which is far from good. This is a time of spiritual crisis. The traditional Olama's discourse and the highfaluting Urdu and Persian poetry and the ancient talk of nightingales and rose gardens and Leila and Majnun is colliding with the pragmatism of John Stuart Mill and the religious scepticism of Henry James and there doesn't seem to be a way in which you can inhabit both worlds. Remember what we said about this 1850s watershed and the difficulty that so many Muslims had in adjusting themselves mentally to this completely new cognitive frame. Now, all of this reading that he's doing late at night, reading this philosophy in the, the library at Canning College, is starting to get to him. He doesn't have a language which enables him to process this new science-based very secular philosophy. Huxley was called Darwin's bulldog. These are really anti-religious figures. Um, and because he is inhabiting two worlds, the kind of traditional Munshi world of the extended family at home, every second sentence is a line of poetry. And then he's reading this, this Victorian sort of secular positivism, that because he's inhabiting these two worlds, he kind of falls into a spiritual crisis. And that maybe is the most dramatic sort of Ghazalian moment in his life, that effectively he loses his faith. He doesn't go out carousing, drinking, womanizing and so forth. It's not like that. He's still a very high-minded person, but he's not praying any longer. And even when he puts his religious identity down when applying for this MA, under religion, he doesn't put Muslim, he puts rationalist. That's quite extreme to be that out and open about it. And it seems that he becomes pretty confident and arrogant. The ulama can't help him. They don't know these modern debates. They can't deal with John Stuart Mill and so forth. Um, uh, his brilliant world, with all of its articulateness, doesn't have anything to say to him. It's dumb. So he's in this kind of desert. Um, and during this time starts to publish, he's still in his early 20s, uh, very smart. Um, Unwins, publishers in London, uh, bring out uh, a book, Psychology of Leadership, quite appropriate for these lectures, which is in English. He writes it in nice English. Um, and it's pretty hostile to the idea of prophecy, to the idea of belief in God. It's about progress, science, positivism, reason, all of these sort of 19th century Victorian ideals that were then going to come under severe pressure in the 20th century following you know, rationalist ideologies of communism, Marxism, and then uh, the collapse of the Newtonian idea of cause and effect at the hands of Darwin, uh, at the hands of um, uh, uh, Einstein. 
relativity um, when theology started to become much more intellectually interesting again. But this time, it is hard. So he starts to write anonymous articles defending secularity and atheism in Urdu journals. But word gets out. So Ahmad Raza Khan, who is never hesitant to hurl an anathema at anybody, calls him kafir. Becomes a big, big deal. Um, but then slowly, his views start to moderate. He's a kind of zealous convert to, the, to nothingness. Um, but uh, it's very important to recognize how this happens, because even today, you know, there are Muslims who have a crisis. They go do a degree in medicine, and they think Darwin can't be reconciled. It becomes the Malvi Saab at the mosque can't really help, and so there's a crisis. Uh, and in this generation, this is really the first time when this is happening to the Ummah, across the Ummah. But in his case, you know, particularly scandalous, given his background and his ancestry and his, his Ahafis. Uh, so it's important to spend some time thinking about how it was during these 10 years that he starts to soften and comes back. This is like Salman Rushdie, but 100 years earlier. The Salman Rushdie crisis is book burning and hyperventilating and Khomeini's fatwa and that, if anything, pushes Rushdie further away. It's certainly not the kind of panic, knee-jerk reaction that's going to melt his heart and think, well, maybe I should start taking Islam more seriously. 100 years ago, the Muslim ulama and population of India were more subtle and more confident and thought, instead of pressing the panic button, let's work with him. Mm. Let's pray for him. It said his father went on Hajj specifically to pray for his son. Um, but never heard the news that he'd come back to Islam. It was a real source of grief for him. Um, and so scholars who are already in his circle are trying to reason with this sort of passionate, um, dogmatic young man. One is Muhammad Ali Jauhar, who becomes one of the key figures in the Congress party and a key, quite often imprisoned, um, activist and agitator against, um, against the, the Raj. Um, in fact, he becomes the president of the National Congress Party for, for a while. He's another Aligarh graduate, but also studies in Oxford. So he's a very interesting example of this transitional generation, regarded as a bit too kind of dogmatically religious by some of the more kind of secularizing Jinnah type um, people in India at the time, uh, but a really triumphant defender of the Qur'an. Um, really good in English, writes articles in the Times and the Guardian. Um, somebody worth finding out about, Muhammad Ali Jauhar from this transitional uh, generation. So he goes to him and tries to kind of listen to him, to deal gently with him, to hear his arguments, to try and find some common ground. In the background, and the extent of this uh, has not really been fully acknowledged by a lot of modern Indian writers who are still in the shadow of the Aligarh movement's determination to demonstrate against the uh, idea of so many British writers that Indian religion is a kind of folklore or primitivism. But there is in the family uh, another influence, uh, the influence of somebody called Waris Ali Shah. Now, Waris Ali Shah dies in 1905, so this is before the crisis. But his disciples, Dervish's acolytes, are still around. And 
Uh, he is from a place called Deva, nowadays Deva Sharif, which is only kind of a day's walk, if you like, from for Lucknow. And this is the big spiritual happening of the region in the late 19th century. And uh, this movement is a kind of really medieval movement in many ways. This has nothing to do with any kind of formalized, fastidious, Deobandi precision, nor has it anything to do with Chirag Ali or Sayyid Ahmed Khan, Yusuf Ali, uh, reformism or rationalism. This is traditional Indian Sufism. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Walsis continue to exist. Uh, He is this ecstatic. So the story, and it's worth being aware that behind the scenes of these kind of anglicized elites, traditional India is still what most people are following. Five generations uh, before uh, Waris Ali Shah burst onto the scene as this kind of geezer of ecstatic um, wilaya, um, a wandering dervish had come five generations to, to his ancestor, saying, my greetings to you and to him who will be born in your family. Allah has illuminated your brow. I offer you my congratulations. His qualities will spill over the boundaries of two worlds. His conduct and kindness will resemble the light of Mustafa. He will be popular from east to west. In young people, even among Christians, they will acknowledge him as their leader. He will be the guide of every religion. He will fulfill the aspirations and hopes of everyone. So, kind of a legendary account. But an indication of the idea that Islam then, through the optic of the Sufis, was something too enormous to fit into one particular vessel, but overflowed because of the immensity of the walaya of these people who lived in poverty and when they inherited, gave it away. So um, this is the founder of the Warsi order. Uh, They're big in Karachi nowadays, but they still have, for instance, the Warsi brothers, great Kowali singers in Hyderabad and so forth, and they're keeping that tradition alive, this kind of ecstatic folk, uh, Wali-centred Islam. And as this prophecy indicated, the the disciples of this tariqah would include many Hindus. To be a formal murid, initiated bay'ah, you had to be Muhammadan, but you could certainly come and participate and get the sheikh's guidance, your dream interpreted if you were Hindus. And this is the traditional way Islam is spread in the subcontinent. And one of the things that Muslims in the subcontinent have lost in the 20th century is this idea of bringing in everybody from the principle of the holy man, which is really interesting to everybody in India. So this name Warsi is a sort of surname or patronymic which can be carried by Hindus as well as by Muslims. Muslim context, for instance, we have Baroness Warsi in this country, of course, in some complex way, comes from that, that world. So this Waris Ali Shah, completely traditional person, ecstatic outpourer of amazing poetry and a wonder worker and people in his presence went into a kind of hal or ecstasy. <laughs> this is certainly the traditional form of Sufism in India. He goes to England and meets Queen Victoria, who is amazed by him. He meets Otto von Bismarck in Germany. He wants to spread this message of love, ecstasy, 
kindness to everybody, to everybody. So he goes to, in, to, goes to Europe, and because he's a famous fakir or dervish, is received by people and, and immensely respected. So that is in the background. The family is aware of that as well, as well as this kind of rationalist Firangi Mahal thing. There is sort of ecstasy, hal, wedged. Which, of course, the, the, the problem with that is that it can become decadent quite easily because of the focus on the personality of the sheikh and the shrine of the sheikh. Those places often, nowadays, if you visit them, can be quite depressing. The aroma of hashish in the air and people not really bothering with the prayers and not properly segregating the genders and people selling talismans and exorcists and it's that kind of folk religion which is often uh, explicitly decadent. Um, so quite often that sort of Sufism kind of collapses quite quickly into that. The, white-hot transformative power of the sheikh during his lifetime. Mm, charisma is routinized in ways that can be, not always, but can be quite, quite negative. But that is there in the background, and uh, those people are around. His experience of, of holy people is part of his makeup. Uh, somebody who is kind of on that side of things, but is a poet, is Akbar Allah Habadi who is a noted Urdu stylist, but also a judge, so he's part of the, the British scheme. Uh, but uh, pro-independence, a lot of his Urdu poetry is satire, mocking British civilization and the pomposity of the British. Uh, and Akbar Allah Habadi seems to have been quite instrumental in his reconversion to Islam. His friends with him, they can talk about literature together, they have things in common. He's very gentle. He doesn't shout at him. He doesn't say, Kafir, shout. It's not like the modern Saudi ulama who say that atheism is terrorism and sort of bore everybody with their sort of stupid emotional reactions. He's, he's genuinely concerned to help and uh, advises him to uh, work particularly on the Masnavi. The Masnavi of Rumi is part of the Persian world that everybody knows, and they both work together through the Masnavi. Um, another contact is an interesting person. Um, it's not clear if they met in person, but there's some kind of, they're in the same circle. Atiya Faizi, who is interesting as quite a westernized, but still Muslim lady, who is the first Muslim woman to have studied at the University of Cambridge. These connections are still uh, present. And she was in uh, communication with Shibli Nomani, who is a well-known polyglot and, and alim, author of a number of books, some of which have gone into, into English. Um, Chibli Nottamani, not so westernized or familiar with Western things, perhaps he studied with traditional scholars and Sufis in, in Mecca and, uh, and becomes the principal for a while of the, the Darul Ulum in Lucknow, the Nadwat al-Ulama in Lucknow. Um, he writes a Sira book, which is influential because the writing of Sira at this time, like writing about the Qur'an, is against the background of Western Orientalist missionary scientific attacks. So the style of Sira that's developing in India at the time and finds its way into Darebadi's own writing is an attempt to explain to Muslims 
the perfection of the Holy Prophet, not in traditional pietistic, eulogistic terms, but explaining morally, metaphysically, historically, um, the excellence of the Chosen One, alayhi salatu um, Darya Badi actually attacks Shibli quite violently in some Urdu articles, and Shibli Nomani responds very kind of gently, and even gives him a job, sort of writing a few articles in his in his journals. So this principle of idfa billati ahsan, the Quranic instruction of push back against an offence with something more beautiful, mm. and this mujadala billati ahsan, discussing with others in the most excellent way. This is the Quranic instruction on how you deal with people who are in a state of falsehood. Was still understood by the ulama in India at that time. Uh, so, because they are, you know, he, he can't really make headway, he can't ex- get an emotional reaction from them that is equivalent to his own emotional turmoil, he starts to calm down and sees the quality of these people, and they say, look at what is of universal interest in Rumi, look at the life of the Holy Prophet, look at the Qur'an, you can at least learn, improve your Arabic through studying the Qur'an. But then also, he's continuing his study of Western philosophy, and he realizes that there are dimensions in Western philosophy that are respectful of forms of religious belief. And his trajectory here is a very kind of curious, perhaps surprising one, at least to a lot of modern Muslims. His interest in Schopenhauer, we think of having no interest in religion at all, um, the predecessor of Nietzsche. But Schopenhauer is respectful to Indian religion and Buddhism in particular. Daryabadi thinks, why should he be interested in Buddhism? So he starts to study Buddhism and recognizes that Buddhism is not just kind of idolatrous fairy tales, but is a, uh, uh, an integral spiritual uh, principle. Um, you also read some Hindu thinkers. So he's prompted to do this not by his Hindu friends, but by these German philosophers who are interested in Indian religion. He reads Sri Aurobindo. Um, and then he reads the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, the great sort of uh, Hindu spiritual classic. Um, he reads it in uh, English. Uh, he's in contact with Gandhi, who he really respects. And of course, since independence is the big issue for everybody in India at the time, the fact that Gandhi is also an active practitioner of a religion and not some kind of science-worshipping uh, uh, atheist has an impact. They, they don't actually meet until much later. Uh, in the 1920s, they meet at actually the Ors of Khawaja Mu'ayneddin uh, Chishti in Ajmer, where they finally meet. Um, but he's starting to realize that even these philosophers in the West are interested in <coughs> spiritual ideas and in Indian. So he's moving now towards a study of the Hindu tradition and Buddhism, and particularly those who a kind of on the interface. And this is a time when, since the time of somebody called Ram Mohan Roy, uh, there has been an interest in Hindu figures in seeing how Hindu religion can be articulated in terms intelligible to the West. And just as Goethe falls in love with Saadi and Hafiz and becomes a kind of Muslim, so also there are Europeans who are really interested in the Hindu tradition. And the theosophists, this might seem very improbable, um, the, the Theosophical Society, uh, Annie Bazant, Madame Blavatsky, uh, produce people like Bhavan Das, 
who he meets and finds to be a very holy person. So he's amazed by the presence of this religious charisma in this Hindu figure. Um, and <coughs> Blavatsky dies in 1895, so <coughs> she's already gone. And then there's the famous split in the theosophical movements, <coughs> movement. And there's the Adyar faction, which is still there in India. And, uh, and then the European theosophists formed their own kind of Europeanized version of some sort of perennial wisdom with Vedic bits in it. And Rudolf Steiner, with his anthroposophy, comes out of that at about the time of the First World War. And of course, um, the Steiner schools are around the world now. A lot of Muslims like to send their kids to the Steiner school. So theosophy as such is, is profoundly problematic and not regarded as particularly serious by most Brahmanical Hindus. But it's a kind of place where you can see Westerners interested in Eastern wisdom and a sort of syncretism and cross-fertilization taking place. So this breaks Daryabadi's conviction that it's black and white, East and West completely opposed to each other. There can't be a conversation, there can't be an overlap zone. So <laughs> rather curious circumstance, um, this reignites his interest in Sufism and the Persian classics, which, as I said, are kind of really beloved to the Hindu elite at the time. Rumi's Mastavi, he never stops reading. He's really interested in uh, Sirhindi's Maktubat, which are one of the great Naqshbandi achievements of uh, early Mughal India. And then one of the key moments, again, curiously, and of course we're dealing when you deal with faith, which is a gift anyway, you're dealing with obscure tides in the heart. It's like falling in love. Who knows really what's going on, why people believe, why they're inclined to certain... It's very hard for us to see at this distance exactly what's, what's going on in his spiritual return. But it seems that reading English translations of the Qur'an does it for him. Well, the Qur'an is an Arabic text, and the translations are not really translations, they're just kind of paraphrases in another very different language. But he looks at certain, at that time pretty early, English translations of the Qur'an, and somehow he seems to see the book in a different linguistic world, seeing it in the vocabulary of English, indicates that there are ways of inhabiting the English linguistic space that are also Islamic. And it may well be, oddly, that it is these early English translations of the Qur'an that make him respect Islam again and see it in uh, a different light. So slowly, thanks to the patience and the compassion of his scholarly friends, and because of the power of Allah's book, even in English garb, and because of the, his sort of journey, he's never personally interested in the Hindu thing, but He's impressed by these people uh, and sees that the West doesn't have a monopoly on truth and many Westerners are interested in spiritual things. That one day in the house of uh, this Urdu poet, Akbar Allahabadi, um, he takes his shahada again, and this is how he describes it later. One day when I had taken my shahada again and was a guest of Akbar Allahabadi, I joined him for the first time in Zuhr prayer. He became happy, prayed to Allah for me, and told me that my late father 
would be rejoiced by the angels with the news of my prayer. So by 1918, he's back in Islam and lives really the remainder of his life as a great mujahid, a great struggler for the truth of Islam with his pen. So uh, this is the great drama, the kind of Ghazalian crisis and repentance of his life. And it's, it's complex the way in which he found his way back. But it's important to study this because how do we replicate this for confused young Muslims at Bristol University? How can we help them back and how can we actually make their experience of the darkness something that helps them to appreciate the light a bit more so they become reinforced? by their journey, when they found the light at the end of the tunnel, um, we need to study things like this rather than shy away from them. It may well be that the experience of the catastrophe of the First World War and the disillusionment that many were feeling with the triumphant march of Western civilization um, uh, also had an impact on him. But in any case, uh, he becomes stronger than ever and becomes uh, particularly a devotee of the Qur'an. He has a spiritual teacher at this time, and even though there's this ecstatic thing around, he uh, chooses to make bay'ah uh, to Maulana Ashraf Ali Tanvi, who we encountered in previous lectures, who is this uh, Darul Ulum Deoband Supremo, who had once despised, as not, despised not really being sufficiently anti-British and being very conservative and narrow and just stuck in traditional texts. But then somebody gives him his speeches and his khutbas and that changes his mind. The guy is really brilliant. The lucidity of it um, appeals um, to him. So he takes his bay'ah from him. This is in the Chishti Sabari line. Also interestingly, he takes a bay'ah later on, it seems, with, with Maulana Hussein Ahmad Madani, who we had our Paradigms lecture about uh, earlier. So certainly in middle age, Tanavi becomes the great uh, influence upon him. Uh, and Tanavi also a great lover of the Qur'an and has this kind of tafsir work, Bayan al-Qur'an, uh, which becomes a kind of important foundation for Daryabadi's own tafsirs. Um, and in his book, Tarbiyat al-Suluq, advocates certainly Sufism as the basis of what you might call religious Islam. Uh, as very sober, disciplined. And the discipline, particularly of this tariqa, uh, is a support for um, many of the scholars of this age, where they absolutely meticulously map out every hour of the day. And uh, when he kind of semi-retires and de devotes himself just to reading and writing, goes back to Daryabad. Um, the account of how he ran his household, even though it was extremely loving and prayerful and hospitable and guests and cousins and so forth, <laughs> it's like a tariqa, uh, because he wanted every member of his household, daughter, cousin, whoever, to write a report every day on what that person had done during the day. So every daughter had to write, Daddy, today I did this and I read that and I read that and I learnt this and can you explain? Every day. <laughs> so this is the kind of Sufi principle of muhasaba, calling oneself to account, reckoning, but in family life. And he imposed it upon himself and he was amazingly prolific in terms of the number of things that he could achieve and you know, his letters 
people would write to him, he would always write back, whatever the question might be. So after he died, they collected his letters and published them in seven volumes of letters. And he achieved this simply through real discipline and time management, which is one of the gifts of tariqah. Every moment, every nafas is a breath, uh, a secret of God. Seize it, don't throw it away, make use of it, because it won't come back. So the Sufi time management thing helps productivity and helps with his, his family life. So Tanavi is his inspiration. He goes back to Dariabad at the time, it's a small town, no electricity, it's really quite, quite basic. And he lives with his books and his family. How does he support himself? Well, the Nizam of Hyderabad is giving him a small amount of money on condition that he publishes a book every year. He gets a little bit of income from writing in Urdu journals and uh, from his uh, royalties on his books, which is not very much. But one of the things about him that is interesting is that he doesn't belong to any organization or any tendency, really, even though he has this particular connection with, with Aligar and then particularly with, with Nadwa. Uh, he's not a Deobandi, he's not a Brailvi, he's not explicit about his tariqah affiliation, he's not Ahl al-Hadith. A lot of his friends are Shia. Um, he doesn't, because he doesn't belong to any of the factions of Indian Islam, as they're already forming, he doesn't really have a big national infrastructure that can support his publications. They can immediately say, there's your tafsir, we'll publish it. Here is your new collection of poems, we'll publish that. And he always struggled to get his works out, even though he was so uh, respected. Um, so his Urdu tafsir, which is a major tafsir, he could only publish at first by serialising it in little bits in his journal. Um, he published a weekly journal, Sidq, which one of the big Urdu literary journals, which continued really throughout his life, and that was one of his major, uh, major calls on his time. Um, one of the things about his journal is that it doesn't talk too much about political infighting um, and is not really polemical. It's literary, it tries to include everybody, it's a platform for everybody in the North Indian culture of the day. It's consistently hostile to Western policies in the Muslim world, but the focus is more Quranic and poetry rather than uh, political polemic. Now, but his great work, and that which he really dedicated the, the golden years of his life to, was the service of the Qur'an, which can be seen in a sense, I mean, partly because he was a lover of the Qur'an and uh, had been brought back to Islam in a strange way by English translations of the Qur'an, um, seems to have been precipitated by a suggestion by Mawlana Hussein Ahmad Madani, although there are other explanations as well. But he has two major tafsirs, one of which is in Urdu, and the other is in English. Now, what can we say about uh, this tafsir? We have it in the CMC library, and here it is, two significant volumes. This is the edition from Darul Ishaat. Karachi in Pakistan. Actually, publishing there has improved. It's a perfectly nice piece of work. So you can see why it was a bit of a job for publishers, because you have to get the Arabic text. Absolutely right. If there's one mistake in it, you have to pulp the whole edition. And um, so it's, it's quite a 
brave thing for publishers to take on, but you know, it is now finally available, and there's a version that you can get through the Islamic Foundation in Leicester, who've done a lot, actually, to promote um, his legacy and this, this tradition. Uh, you could say, looking at it, uh, that, well, it is a tafsir, because uh, it's not a criterion of tafsir that it should be in Arabic. So Maybudi's Persian commentary on the Qur'an, uh, which is the first, one of the first Persian Islamic texts, really, which is in ten volumes, um, which is a Hanbali Sufi tafsir, is a tafsir, even though it's in Persian. So it's perfectly legitimate to write a tafsir in the English language. And this is what he gives us in this tafsir al-Qur'an, translation and commentary of the Holy Qur'an. He doesn't really give it more of a name than that. Sometimes it's called tafsir al-Majidi, um, after his name. Uh, he is, in a sense, just as Imam al-Ghazali is in his later life arguing with the things that had caused him doubts in his earlier life, he is also dealing implicitly, though not polemically, with certain of the carpings and the polemics that have been directed against the Qur'an by European Orientalists, missionaries, uh, and ill-wishers of various kinds. Uh, so you could say it has an apologetic dimension. But that actually makes it really useful, because a lot of people nowadays look at things in the Qur'an to say, well, what really does that verse mean? Uh, is that translation really correct? I saw this YouTube clip that said that this was from some Syriacs, what, what, so it is useful to have that uh, contemporary dimension. And of course, as somebody who's not just Hafiz, but <laughs> had read the whole Encyclopedia Britannica, he does uh, have a breadth of knowledge. So <laughs> he's good at accessing biblical scholarship. He's good at dealing with the Arabic um, uh, difficulties of the text. He understands it really well. He knows that you have to understand contemporary archaeology. Uh, so it is a good deal, in fact infinitely better, than the sort of tafsir which a lot of English-speaking Muslims are more familiar with, which is Abdullah Yusuf Ali's Qur'an, which may well be the most frequently printed translation of the Qur'an into English maybe into any Western language, and which, even though it's kind of flowery and inoffensive, is really quite a problematic text, uh, because he is very much in the Sayyid Ahmed Khan apologetic mode. He doesn't really believe in jinn. He's not really sure about angels. Anything that looks supernatural is rationalistically explained away. Heaven and hell are not really about reward and punishment, but are some kind of intellectual. It's uh, quite alarming, really, even though in the 70s and 80s, uh, various Muslims tried to uh, smooth over these uh, irregularities. But um, uh, it's now falling out of favor, I think. So uh, that came out whenever it was, 1935. Uh, this is about 10 years later. But it's a real tafsir. Um, based on real knowledge and a determination to be authentic in the sort of traditional Islam sense, but not a sectarian sense. Um, now, there's so much that sort of 
a bit puzzling about it. I'm certainly not saying that it's perfect and there's misprints. And it's written for early 20th century Indians, so uh, specifically for their work. But um, the, it's interesting, that even though he spent seven years or so working on this and actually suspended publication of his weekly journal, Sidq, for two years just so that he could get down to this, the introduction is less than four pages, and he even calls it just a preface. Uh, why is that? But actually, if you look at it, it really does talk about you know, the problems of translation. It's not an introduction to the Quran, it's, a problem about, it's an introduction to the problems of translation in really nice English. Of all great works, this is how he starts, the Holy Qur'an is perhaps the least translatable. Arabic is not at all easy to translate into a language so widely and radically differing from it in structure and genius as English, unless it be with the aid of loose periphrasis and lax paraphrase. Even so, the fire of the original is quenched, its vivacious perspicuity is lost, and the so-called literal translation looks rugged and dreary. That the language of the Arabs abounds in nuances and both the noun and the verb are extremely flexible is a fact well known to every student of that tongue. That difficulty is increased a hundredfold when one has to render into English with any degree of accuracy and precision a work so rich in meaning, so pithy in expression, so vigorous in style and so subtle in implications as the Holy Qur'an. Now, so it's, it's short, but the way he expresses it is really spot on and expressed with, with real concision. So he describes the Qur'an as a work so rich in meaning, pithy in expression, vigorous in style, subtle in implications. That's a really brilliant definition of you know, why we find the Qur'an is kind of like the TARDIS. There's more inside than outside, and you read it, and it kind of grows, and... Each time you give a khutbah and you look something up, you find a new extraordinary thing. And the delight of Islam really is that the Qur'an is this banquet that continues to feed you. It kind of, it just flowers keep, keep growing. And he's really, really nailed it here, I would say. But anyway, he has six uh, impediments. The impediments confronting an honest translator may be summed up under six main heads and various subheadings. So I'll do this just briefly. One, in the first place comes the comparative poverty of the English language in several respects. For instance, there's a large number of Arabic verbs untranslatable into English as verbs. Uh, Arabic is based on roots that are verbal, and the nouns flow from the roots. So it has this kind of dynamic because a verb is something that is about movement, about action. A noun is about something that is static. And English uses a lot of um, um, verbs in a kind of auxiliary sense. So it's Arabic, it's verbs, verbs, verbs. It gives it tremendous energy. And he's, he's, he's seen this. One has perforce to render each of these words not by a single word, but by a combination of words. So he gives some examples of that. Uh, Next, repetition of synonyms, chiefly for the sake of emphasis, is a frequent occurrence in Arabic. In the English language, there's no sanction for it. Thus, many such expressions as, Inna nahnu nuhil mawta, 
inna nahnu lanuhyi al-mawta, literally, verily, we, 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 quicken the dead, <laughs> um, have to remain only partly translated. So that's the second difficulty. Three, another serious difficulty is caused by the case in which ellipses occur in the best and finest Arabic style, and both words and phrases have to be supplied by the reader to make the sense complete. Mm. Yeah. In other words, there's something, there's things that you understand when you read the Arabic, but which aren't actually stated. And the text has such dynamism that actually the, the energy of it, the momentum carries you over those apparent gaps and it, it's more energized and more kind of vertiginous as a result. But doing that in English is difficult. The obvious duty of the translator on all such occasions is to supply the omission although his attempts in many cases must be hazardous. And he does this, as Sale does, by italicizing the bits that he's had to, to supply. Four, yet another perplexity is caused to the translator by the abrupt grammatical transition in one and the same sentence frequent in Arabic of person as from the first and second person to the third or vice versa. This is what they call iltifat, which is in the Fatiha, which begins with he, Allah, Rabbul Alameen, and then switches halfway through to the second person. Uh, that's a strange thing in English. Five, a further complication is caused by what is known as intishari tamair, a personal relative pronoun having different antecedents in one of the same sentence. Huh. In other words, there may be a personal pronoun that seems to refer to a number of things previously and therefore the ambiguity adds to the richness of the text. But when you translate it, you, know, you can't maintain that ambiguity, except you know, a really good translator can sometimes do that. Six, finally, there's no real equivalence in the import of many of the Arabic and English words generally held to be synonyms. Yeah. Yeah, so how do you translate if the Arabic doesn't have a really exact English equivalent ever, really? The Arabic word zena, for instance, there's no equivalent in English, both adultery and fornication being of much narrower import. Adultery is zina outside marriage, fornication is zina before marriage. So how do you translate zina? Uh, and so forth. Anyway, and then he goes uh, on and then talks about his own, <laughs> his meager knowledge of English and his passing acquaintance with Arabic. Well, you know, some of the world's great novelists nowadays come from India. I mentioned Arundhati Roy, but there's plenty of others. So um, and in many ways, in India today, because they retain a kind of traditional Victorian curriculum and little kids learn a lot of Dickens, they are better in English, despite the accent, than we are in England now, because we don't teach Dickens to primary school kids any longer. We give them basic things because there isn't a discipline that can carry them through Nicholas Nickleby. So, Generally, the Indian subcontinental standard of English in the better schools is better than what it is in this country. So that's why they're producing all of these great writers. Anyway, so um, I found that really a kind of perfect but very brief statement of not, he's not saying untranslatable. He's translated it. It is a translator, but he's saying <laughs> yes, but no. It's a translation. It's not a translation. Anyway. Um, but he also uses classical sects, uh, texts. I mentioned that he uses Tahanavi's um, 
biennial Qur'an, uh, but he also uses the classical commentaries quite extensively. So he uses Baydawi, he uses Razi, he uses Ibn Kathir, he uses um, Ibn Abbas. So he's really covered them. And also the Ruh al-Ma'ani of Al-Usi, mid-19th century Iraqi commentator, which could be seen as kind of the beginning of um, a new school of commentary. Anyway, so he produces this work and... <laughs> Very complex publication history. And this is one of the tragedies of the Ummah. We don't have proper university presses. Um, in the Arab world, they certainly don't. The only exception really is Turkey, where the divinity faculties do have their own journals and do have their um, publication houses, um, but not generally elsewhere in the Islamic world. So he gives it to a Pakistani publisher who mangles it. Abul Hassan Nadwi rescues it and works on it, and finally it's published in Lucknow in four volumes. Um, the first proper edition doesn't come out until about 1985, so it has to wait 40 years or so before it comes out. Um, he has other books on the Qur'an, uh, which are interesting. Ardul Qur'an, which is on the toponymics, the place names in the Qur'an. He has a book on uh, the famous... The, the, the proper names in the Qur'an, so who is the Fir'aun, who, who are these individual prophets and so forth. This is A'lam al-Qur'an. <coughs> uh, other books, he has a book on Tasawwuf, Tasawwuf islami published in Lucknow in, eight, in 1929, I think, which is an interesting kind of book in that it's a kind of summary of some of the early Tasawwuf manuals from Sarraj, 4th century of the Hijrah, uh, down to, again, Mullah Abdurrahman Jami in the 8th and 9th century, and his Lawa'ih, which we looked at briefly when we talked about Jami. So a very interesting <coughs> way of <coughs> introducing Sufism just by these literary figures. And it's written to some extent <coughs> in order to alert people who might be seduced by the kind of Ahl al-Hadith attempt to shrink Islam that this is part of the fullness of scriptural Islam. He has a short seerah, which is interesting again, unusual, based very much on the seerah events as these are recounted in the Qur'an. Uh, and biographical works, so this Akbar Allah Habadi, the satirical poet who helped to uh, catalyze his, his conversion or his reconversion. He has a whole book about him, a very useful biography, I'm told. Um, so his really in a state of some poverty in Daryabad, turning out these books and this journal. He's able to do this partly because he's not part of an organization and he tries <coughs> to pull together you know, all of the Muslim tendencies in India. And that's certainly been for CMC an important principle that you know, we don't have any confessional requirements for studying here. Even if you're a Christian, you could take the BA at CMC and we're kind of inclusive in that sense. Um, and I mentioned his you know, good relations with, with these Hindus. It is very important, I think, to remember that this strict Islamic authenticity, the guy whose mother won't stand on a railway platform, is also from that same world that was friendly with Hindus and they were reading Persian. And that can't be stressed enough, really, uh, in our polarizing uh, BJP times. Um, 
So uh, he uh, maintains this uh, extraordinary sort of diligent life as an independent scholar, uh, which is another mode that you find some ulama trying to follow nowadays, even though in the Islamic world, majority Muslim countries, there's so much state supervision of ulama and insistence that if you're going to work on religion, you have to do so in the context of university or even a darat rond that is subject to some kind of state scrutiny because of the securitizing of religion. Uh, it's really a privilege to be outside that world and to be able to research and to do new and constructive things rather than be part of an apparatus which is ultimately uh, curated in order to ensure the survivability of some regime or other. Well, that's a harsh judgment, but a lot of our institutions have become like that. Uh, they're ancillaries to regime survival. This is a subversion that we really have to at least be alert to. But you know, in the West, rather like in sort of Republican India, you're not subject to those kind of strictures. And as long as you're not sort of outrageously extreme, um, you can do new things the way he did in order to... Uh, serve the religion. So we should close. Um, he dies, as I say, at the beginning of 1977. He dies in Lucknow and the first Janeza prayer is held at Nedrutul Olamat and according to his own wishes, uh, Maulana uh, Abul Hassan Ali Nedwi leads the Janeza prayer. He's buried in Daryabad, kind of returning home, buried in the Dargah, the little Sufi cemetery of his ancestor, uh, Sheikh Mahdoum Abkesh, the one who brought water to the village, whatever it is um, that he did. And uh, on his grave is inscribed, of course, a Quranic inscription which indicates his humility. قُلْ يَا عِبَادِيَ الَّذِينَ أَسْرَفُوا عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِهِمْ لَا تَقْنَطُوا مِنْ رَحْمَةِ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَغْفِرُ الظُّنُوبَ جَمِيعًا إِنَّهُ هُوَ الْغَفُورُ الرَّحِيمُ So in Surah Al-Zumar, we have a particular connection with Surah Al-Zumar at CMC. It's, the treasures keep, keep coming. <laughs> I've never seen that ayah on a gravestone before. Uh, the, the translation is, Say, O my servants who have been extravagant against themselves, do not despair of Allah's mercy. Allah forgives all sins. He is the forgiving, the merciful. That's a very contrite verse to choose. Uh, and he was a very humble person, uh, despite these you know, very significant uh, accomplishments. And this has something to do, I suspect, with his wandering in the darkness for 10 years, this sort of agnostic or atheistic period. Don't despair of Allah's mercy. That could be said of the whole ummah as we wander in this darkness of craziness that's going on now. And so few Muslim countries to whose structures one can really give heartfelt assent nowadays. Things are really decadent in some cases, outrageous. There's a lot of darkness around, but look at this. He went through the ultimate darkness, came back again, shone light to so many. So we're proud to have his tafsir in the CMC library. And inshallah, it'll be in the library helping people in 100 years' time. 
Do not despair of Allah's mercy. Uh, that's a good ayah to remember in this time when we really seem to be in a tunnel. So, uh, yeah. Rahmatullahi Ali, Abdul Majid, Darya Badi, Rahmatullahi Ali. Interesting life, traumatized life in a difficult time of shifting between a fully medieval, God-oriented life to the pragmatism of test tubes, railway trains, British Raj, institutional racism, a difficult time he lived through, caught between two worlds and showing that because Islam is light and can't be confined in any world, that you can use Islam in the context of the English language and the Qur'an's light continues to shine even in the language of the imperialist. Uh, so Islam prevails, it has the upper hand. Kalimatullahi al-Ulya. What remains of the Raj now? Well, some messed up mines and a few railway stations. Uh, but Islam is still going. Uh, churches of the Raj largely empty. Mosques are still full, despite all of pessimism. The mosques everywhere are still full. La taqnatumi rahmatillah. Do not despair of Allah's mercy. So, inshallah, uh, it's a, a dramatic story, but one from which we can learn practical lessons because it's a story of our time and our age. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant him uh, paradise and, inshallah, add to uh, the blessings that he has given to this ummah through his tafsir and his other works, inshallah, and support the Muslims of India in these difficult times, inshallah. They've been through difficult times before, inshallah. Kalimatullah, hiyal uliya, Allah's word is uppermost. Barakallahu fikum wal afu minkum. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.